Hello and welcome to the Latecomers. I'm Amity. I am Lemuel. And this week we're gonna revisit a 1978 epic war film, The Deer Hunter. Before we get into the get into it, I want to ask you how your week was. My week actually went really well. I went on a hike and I had an Italian dinner and I did you see sheeps? I saw so many sheeps. I was about to bring that up. Uh, how was your week? It was all right. I've had a lot of work in the last week because I was nervous because I didn't have a lot of work last month. So I sent a little, hey, all my clients, if you have things you want me to do, here's all the things I can do. And now I have a bunch of work, which is great. It's very good. Mm-hmm. I'm going to... I'm be able to put some money into savings this week or this month, so that's good. Um, But it just means that I've been busy. I've also, fortunately, gotten on some new medications. Hey, everybody, take your medicine. Yes. Uh, And it's helping with my focus. I say it. A lot of people say it. Your doctor says it probably, too. Well, well, that's a long story. (laughs) My doctor didn't once upon a time. Well, but now you have good doctors Mm -hmm. that do tell you that. And... uh, yeah, and that's helping with my focus, which is helping me get things done, which is great. Good. I worked for like eight hours on Sunday, y'all. Eight hours. Set aside some time for your weekends, but I don't think I'm going to have to do that next weekend. Good, so that's good. good. Um, all right. Let's talk about the deer hunter. We are going to, I'm going to just plug in our previous episode mm-hmm. after we finish talking about it, but how it fits into the... AFI list of thrills. Um, first of all, in case you don't remember, and in case I don't say it, although I have to think that I say it, trigger warning for literally everything. Oh, yes. <laughs> like, I don't know that there's sexual assault, but like any violence, suicide, uh, anything like that. Yes. Gu- guns. PTSD. Yeah. What, yeah. Uh, war. Right. So it's, uh, it's the seventies. Remember how the seventies are? fucking terrible right. <laughs> like, and i don't know if the 70s themselves were terrible but the the media that was made in the 70s and a lot of it i think is very much even if it was not a mm. direct response to the vietnam war was in fact a direct response to the it vietnam, was vietnam war. it was living post the assassination of the kennedys yeah and dr king and um Malcolm x yeah, just people working their shit out on right. ho- big and screens ho- in Hollywood, yeah. and it was rough. It was rough, but it I really feel like it was, and I understand there was a, it was the decade that preceded this, the the end of the sixties was pretty terrible, and also the notion that there was a, a separation. Um, we talked about that last time with hippies and flower power, and then realizing that Manson's family counted as part of that yeah and that they were also here's a a fun thing about humanity Uh any group there is there's a dark side to it right but i mean yeah or any type of associated with five children in general but those were the people he was gathering yes reprogramming them into becoming assassins frankly attempted presidential Mm -hmm. assassins or actual actual killers killers yeah so there was a lot of questioning of not just morals and values but also the state of the world, and how did we get to this place where we're at, and um, and so the films from that period, as difficult as they can get, they can be to get through, 
were actually um, they were important. They yeah. said something. We're going to uh, be seeing The Exorcist soon. Yes, which was a huge film about how do you believe in these sort of forgive me antiquated religious beliefs because exorcism was considered an antiquated religious belief at the time. Yeah, in this modern day and age, yeah. or and the idea being, or that, just the idea of demons, right? And like, the, forget the, how to well, deal with them. The fact that you think that you need a priest to do this and not a psychiatrist. Yes, and the reaction is we'll see in Ellen Burstyn's face when she's like, "Wait, I have to what?" Yeah, and it was part of that idea. When we saw the Omen; it was the same thing. Yeah, you, you're a fanatic. Why are you telling me about this Antichrist character? Yeah, but it was there was a lot of questioning of it, and this film really is questioning the United States. The role of the American soldier, what he was doing. It's also because war films almost universally are. Mm -hmm. It's right. Well, except World War II films that are set in Europe, Mm -hmm. it's extraordinarily racist. Right. Like extraordinarily racist. Any of the the Vietnam films, though, tend to have Mm. caricatures as depictions of our enemies now. What do we do to be able to shoot a Human, you dehumanize them. You dehumanize them, yes. and that is pr- very prevalent in this film. Um, like I say, the only time you don't, don't really see it is when you see um, in the European theater of mm-hmm. World War II or World War One, even. Um, but as soon as they go to Japan, it gets racist again. Mm-hmm. Anything set in the Middle East, right. deeply racist. Like that is. So that is a, a big piece of this one. Um, but I would say that it, I mean, it's number 53 on the um, the current, uh, the most recent AFI top 100 films, mm-hmm. American films. Uh, it's number 53, and it comes in here at number, I have lost, lost track of our, what number we're on. It's number 30 on our yeah. list. Um, wow, we're down to the final 30. That's wild. Uh, and I think that it that that it feels like the right place. It deserves this pl- its place. And I remember you telling us at the, at the time when we were going through the seventies that you thought it was better than the Godfather film. That it was more involving. Yes. Um, and it's I think that it does it did a great job with really making you a part of this community. Yeah, because and part of it is mm. how long it is and right. how much is. Of this, it's like forty minutes before they go to war, right. isn't it? Like you're really getting to know these people, how they are, and how they function inside the communities they function in, and then by taking us to weddings what and other instances after right. that, yeah. So you're able to see how they get affected by this experience and how it rides them off the rails, and they can't quite come back. Yeah, um, and so that's really it's it's I'm. A thrilling film almost seems like it's the wrong label to put on it, because um, it's a really it's a heartbreaking movie. And I don't know if we talked about its awards. I was nominated for nine Academy Awards and won five, including Best Picture and Best Director, Best Supporting Actor for Christopher Walken. Mm-hmm. Think about that. Think about Christopher Walken in 2023 and what he is known for, mm-hmm. and how basically for the last 20 years he's played Christopher Walken. Right. That's what he's been hired to do. I don't begrudge him. Get your money for just being you. Sure. But here he is. He wins the Best Supporting Actor award. And he's got other, I think, Academy Awards as well. Um, and then... Also, Best Sound and Best Editing. And this is Meryl Streep's very first Academy Award nomination. She did not win, but she was nominated for the very first time. So that's a that's a pretty big deal in her, you know, 
Right. History of milestones. <laughs> Anything else you want to say about the deer hunter? We, I know we say it a lot about it four years ago right. we, or I five think, years ago when we talked about it. Yeah. Um, it, so. it's, it's an experience. Be prepared for what you're going to see. Because yeah, it's, it's, um, you got to be... You have to be in the proper frame You almost have to like steal yourself from, right. for it. And if it feels like too much, just bounce. It's okay. Right. You don't have to. It's not. Yeah. You don't have to watch it. It's not like required. But but it is quite it good if is, you can get it through. If it. you can get through it, it's very rewarding. You know because you can see, you get a. It, and I think that's what the strength of the film is. It really gives you a taste of how do I adjust myself to this now. Where am I now after? And that's something that a lot of films about war in general um, don't cover. The idea of now that I've done these things and I have these skills as a yeah. horrible And now skill. you look, you explain to come back and go right. grocery shopping. It, that's like the yeah, Hurt Locker um, deals with. Yes. Right? Yeah, specifically, that there is There's that. One of the few examples yeah. I can think of that actually also address this issue. Where it's just like, I. Right. How you've programmed me. Yeah. And you've not deprogrammed me. So how exactly am I supposed to just get along in a fucking office job? Right. I, it's a good question. It's a very good question. Uh the Yeah, and this feels also like a an axe grinding of the director who says that a lot of this was based on his um experience mm. against patriotism. Right. And against the the blind following of the military, but it's not like they have a choice. It's not mm. like they have a choice. Right. Uh, they are surrounded by men with guns who are ordering them around. And if you don't do what they say, they either shoot you or lock you up. So it's not. And in a situation, in in active war situations, I, I feel they, like the first is way more common they also, than the second. Filled you with a sort of patriotic glory, yeah. If you succeeded at surviving, and that was, and then you get back here and your whole country just goes right, just like hands you the bird, and uh, no medical care and no psychiatric care, and uh, good luck getting a job. And I know we said we pay for your education, but we lie. Like there's a we really let our veterans down for Mm. as much as we. Say we venerate them. Oh, thank them. you for your service. Uh, thank you for your service is becoming the new thoughts and prayers. It, that's what it feels as like. In something that you as you say, say that to somebody who's right. literally homeless on the street because there's no services for them. Right. And I'm like, yeah. What about our service? Don't oh, don't we owe them something? Yeah. The answer to that question, y'all, is yes. <laughs> yes, we do. All right. So that's going to be the Deer Hunter next week. We are talking about The Shining from oh, 1980. Okay. Uh, another one of these uh, little seminal moments in film, but also another little shorty because we have already discussed that because we discussed every Stephen King adaptation. If you haven't listened to those, go back and look. There, we have so many episodes, y'all. Uh, until then, uh, here's our episode on the Deer Hunter. and welcome back to The Latecomers. I'm Amity. I'm Lemuel. And this week, we've got a doozy for you. Yes, absolutely. So we're going to start with some content warnings. We watched The Deer Hunter from 1978. And everything is wrong. 
And so everything. What I want to say is content warning for war, self-harm, amputation, suicide, guns. Uh, is Russian roulette a content warning for that too? Um, homosexual slurs. Yes. Animal violence or violence on animals. Violence against animals. Yeah, that's um, true too. Let's see what else. I think that might cover it. There's a... Um, Russian dancing. <laughs> I'm sure that you don't need a content warning for that, but who am I to know everything that you might need a content warning right. for? So if all of that sounds too intense... Don't see this movie. Next week, we're talking about Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. It's much lighter and fluffier, and come back then. Uh, we will talk about this, and we will talk about it in depth. You can listen to us talk, and then you don't have to watch all of the horrific yeah, things. Yeah, we will so. warn you well ahead of time about what's about to well what happens in the film, so you can yeah. skip it if it's not your cup of tea. Yeah, I'm not sure this movie is anybody's cup of tea. I think it's. A, I actually really liked it. It's However, a serious dramatic film, mm-hmm. but I don't know that it's it's one of those things you can't. Did I enjoy the movie? I don't know that I can I say did. that. I enjoyed the movie. I, oh, I yeah. also never need to see it again. Right. Okay. And it's not like I did it, it's like a dare, mm-hmm. and now I can cross it off the list, although that's what the show kind of has made that. But uh-huh. um, I'm glad that I watched it. I had previously seen one scene from this film, the culminating Russian roulette scene mm-hmm. in a abnormal psychology class in college. Oof. Tell me, or tell us the other scene that you saw in that film. That was it. Oh, and then we watched some stuff from Blue Velvet. Right, so. So, another film that I have not seen, and I'm going to go out on a limb and say, won't ever see. It's a really good film, but it's a David Lynch movie. Not if you don't like David Lynch. Yeah. Yeah, and I'm good. We got our fill of David Lynch. I'm all set over here. So, we're going to tackle this movie in three acts, rather than give a full play-by-play just, well, mainly because the movie is a cool three hours and three minutes long. So we don't want to keep you from your families and the things that you enjoy doing for three hours and three minutes. We plan to be less than half as long as the actual film. Yes. (laughs) So do you want to just dive in? Yeah, there's not really a... It's a weird movie. I mean, just speaking as a person who had taken screenplay writing classes. This broke every single rule that I was taught about writing a screenplay. And that's an interesting thing about the way that... uh, You didn't do any research on this movie. No, no, and I I want to say that I actually was almost stunned by it because it was so strange. And and almost like it felt at times like underdeveloped, but not in a bad way. It's as if you were watching a documentary. It's overdevelopment in some areas and underdevelopment in others, and that's... Probably okay because the underdeveloped places uh-huh. are the most intense. Right. And so to stay there for as long as would make it equal with some of the other uh, uh, things uh-huh. would be way too much, I think, for the viewer, for the actors, for everybody. Well, see, because the first act lasts a third of the length of the movie, really. Yes. And then... There's all sorts of shorter scenes that are very long. And so, but going back to the original point, yeah. I didn't want to know anything more about the movie than just sort of taking it in. Yeah. Because it, it was a cultural phenomenon when I was a kid, when I was really little and too small to understand what this was all about. And it had a huge impact. And it did people. win Best Picture. Right. 
uh, Chris Walken won Best Supporting Actor. Right. Meryl Streep got her first nomination uh, for this. She didn't win, but she did get her first nomination. So let's start with a total overview. So this movie I thought might be based on a book. It was not based on a book. What this movie... And there are apparently... Well, there are conflicting reports as to who wrote what Uh and who was in charge of what. There was a script floating around Hollywood that uh, revolved around Russian roulette players in Las Vegas. And that was the seed for this. Uh, So they took that Russian roulette piece and then put it in a different context, a significantly different context. Robert De Niro was the first person picked for this movie. So Robert De Niro and Chris Walken uh, and John Savage are the three main male uh, characters in this. They're the ones that actually are going to go off to war. Mm -hmm. De Niro and Walken are best friends. And perhaps perhaps there's an underlying kind of... There is an underlying yeah. thought. It's um, there are reads that Christopher Walken is, though he is in, engaged, or becomes engaged to mm. Meryl Streep's character, is actually in love with Robert De Niro's character, and that Robert De Niro's character loves Nick back, mm-hmm. but can't really say so, it. I'm wondering if it's the term uh, that was applied to M.R. James, a non-practicing homosexual. Yeah, something like that. Where in 19... Because this movie takes place in 1968 in uh, Steel Town in Pennsylvania. Right. I'm not sure that it it would be a sexual relationship at all. Because what we've learned from Robert De Niro's character is he seems to be almost non-sexual. I don't think that's true. We'll get to that later, I guess. But yes. Robert De Niro... uh, and Chris Walken, best friends, and then they have another friend, um, Stephen, who is getting married at the beginning of the film. And this is John Savage. And that's John Savage, who um, we discussed as a person who plays a broken golden boy very well. Like, if you know Friday Night Lights, Mm -hmm. he'd he'd be the quarterback who got injured in the beginning, and then we watch him you know, navigate his new life. That's very much like this. John Savage is a very attractive, sort of conventionally attractive man who does fragile and broken very well. When I was a kid, he was around a lot. And uh, the film that I remember him from is The Onion Field, where he plays a a cop who goes through effectively post-traumatic stress for not saving his partner who gets killed by a criminal. And he did. He ate that part up. Yeah. And so there are some actors who, even though they don't, he didn't achieve the same level of stardom as some of the other right. performers in that film. He was always a very solid performer, no matter what he did. And yeah. He did exactly what you're saying, really well. This kind of pain behind the eyes thing. Yeah. And so that was a genius piece of casting for this film. So yes. So it's those three, and then we have John Cazale. I think is how his name is pronounced. Uh-huh. Uh, and that would be Fredo from the Godfather <laughs> movies. Uh, yeah. So we've seen him before. This is his final role. He was, in fact, terminally ill when mm-hmm. this role, movie was being made, and the the scenes with him in it were shot first. Uh, um, did he survive till the end of the? Production? He did, but he never saw the final. F- he uh-huh. he survived the time of the filming, but he never saw the final okay. cut of the film, and. The way that he was cast was through Meryl Streep, and Meryl Streep was cast through Robert De Niro. Mm. So Robert De Niro was brought on. Um, he said, you need to hire Meryl Streep, 
who was hired to play the girlfriend character, specifically was supposed to be De Niro's girlfriend to start with. Mm-hmm. The director was like, this part is underwritten. Write your own lines. So Meryl Streep wrote her own lines for this movie. Wow. So everything that's in this movie that she does is 100% her. And she may have worked with Robert See, De Niro that, and Chris Walken as well. That's the kind of feeling I had with this film, was that it because of the weird structure that it has, and again, from a film writing point of view, mm-hmm. this weird proportion of the acts, the way that things are you're abruptly in one location or mm-hmm. another, it breaks every kind of rule to where it's like you're looking at someone's memories. Yes, and, and that is the... Th- well, yeah, I'll, I'll get to that in a second, right. actually. And so she brings with her her boyfriend at the time. They were involved. Right. Yeah. Um, and he was, at that point, he had lung cancer. You had said had metastasized to his bones. Right. So he was terminally ill at this point, but she was like, if you don't take him, you're not going to get me. Yeah. Because I'm going to spend this time with him. That's... And it really, for anybody who knows about that, that was a great Hollywood love story. She was the most devoted person to him, to where other people remarked on it. Um, uh, John, Ka- uh, what's his name again? Kazale. Kazale. I don't want to say it wrong. Yeah. It could be Kazale. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know. Um, and then, and he plays a, just a heinous character. Right. Like in this movie, but he's, he's the good worst. at that. He's good he at that. Is. Somehow, between the fidgety nervousness and the shifting eyes, he's, he was just made to play these kinds of really unsavory people. And then we have George uh, Zunza. How do you say his name? I always thought it was DZ. U-N-D-Z-A. Too many DZs, and I don't know what to do with them. He was he used to be on Law & Order way, right. way, way back. Um, so I recognized him from that. Then I think he was one of the original cast members. I'm not sure. I think he was even before um, Paul Sorbino. I think that might be right. So though that's the main group. There's also one more gentleman named, I think, Chuck Asp- Aspergren. As Axel, mm-hmm. his name is Peter Axel Axelrod. Literally, this dude's whole, every line that he said was fucking egg. Like, that was almost all that he said throughout the whole movie. He's not an actor. Okay. That uh, makes he was sense. the foreman at the steelworks that they visited in really? pre-production. And De Niro uh, really liked him, and so did Samino, the director. Right. And they put him in the movie. Right. That's something that we should mention. I'm not sure if it's Cimino or Cimino, the director. Oh, yeah, it might be Cimino. Um, We apologize. He was a director who did this film and got a lot of recognition. His next film, I think, was Heaven's Gate, and that movie was so over-budgeted and so over-long that it just tanked and effectively sank his career. Oh, interesting. I don't think he was particularly easy to work with, and here's why. uh, There are claims. He's got a claim, and... uh, um, is it Doug Washburn uh, has a claim as to who wrote what on the script? Uh-huh. Derek Washburn, excuse me. They worked for six weeks together on the script, but one of them says, I had all the ideas and he hammered it out, and the other one says, no, I had all the ideas, and or every time I gave it to him, he would destroy it, or right. like there's this contentious thing about who did what, yeah. and that further came to a head when after the movie came out, there was a lot of controversy, which we'll also get into. Um, and Chimino was like, we're basically telling a parable. And Washburn was like, I just did what he told me to do. And I didn't have time to do any real research. I, that was right. basically what it comes down to. So 
we open in steel in steelworks, and my first thought was, this is in Pennsylvania. Now, well, yeah, you, it's you southern Pennsylvania. One. We're watching Cleveland. Yeah. Hello, Ohio. You've done an excellent job standing in for Pennsylvania. That Russian church with the oh, beautiful onion beautiful domes. onion domes right. is a church in Cleveland. So now something that happens right. I didn't have any idea what they were doing, and I would like anybody in the audience who. I, I'm not sure if anybody has. I think they were smelting working. and making steel. But he, like he's taking some object, he's dipping it inside the steel to see if it's hot enough. I my guess is it's a temperature taking. It's safer thing, than licking your finger and putting it in there. Knows? I, think. I mean, it is. Yeah. It looks like the bowels of hell. The inside of the steel. I have to say, no. the film was also photographed so beautifully that even that scene. No. Oh yes. Looks beautiful somehow. Sure. There's a, a wonderful contrast there. It's, Photograph. I'm not going to attempt his name, even though I've I've seen so many films. Oh yeah, no. Uh, Vilmos Sigmund. It's it's uh, Vilmos. Vilmos will be how his first name is pronounced, but and yeah. I remember him from as a kid. He did a lot of stuff. Him and Caleb Deschanel were like the cinematographers for that generation, and I remember him mostly from Close Encounters. These really beautiful, okay, yeah. la- you know, it's another, that's landscapes. a movie I haven't seen so. But, I know uh, there's mashed potatoes in it. There's, so. there's, it's a film that features mashed potatoes quite I should probably. definitely see it because yes. I do enjoy a mashed potato. Um, so these are Russian-Americans. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Stephen, our John Savage character, is getting married before the three of them ship off to Vietnam. Now, all of them, it, it should be stated, are fairly old to be going to Vietnam. These are men who are clearly in their 20s. They're not kids. Uh, John Savage looks the youngest of them. De Niro looks the oldest, but he was right. 28 when the movie was made, That's so he's not particularly yeah. old. Um, and we get basically the entire length of an actual Russian Orthodox wedding and, right. uh, and the reception. Now, every, as they, this thing took six days to film. Six days, that's it? Six days. Wow. So it must have been like an ongoing stage play because it seems Everyone that's drinking is actually drinking. That explains a lot. All of those parts... Remember I said, look at that huge stack of gifts? They asked all the Russian extras and they had Russians come in. Uh So there's Russian being spoken in the background and they're doing the Russian dancing um, to bring wrapped gifts like, that was done right. by the extras. Wow. The director kept saying, it's going to be 21 minutes in the final movie. It oh, is 51 minutes more in than the twice final that, movie. Yeah. Now, I have to say that it was an interesting technique to, instead of give us a dozen scenes of their life in, uh, you know, at the, the, the steel town, to actually give us one protracted scene that took place, yeah. basically, it's, at times it's it almost, like, it is, especially in the mass, right. like, the church. The mass seems to be real time. It feels <laughs> you know? real time. I mean, was that an actual it priest? It is the oh actual God. priest <laughs> of that church was hired to be the priest in the film. Wow. Yes. I, that was. I kind of got that sense because he performed like an actual priest. But yeah, there's just a very long scene, and I kind of I liked it that I felt like I learned so much from actually people doing things instead of standing and declaring their emotions. Yes. And you're really getting a sense of what these guys are losing right. or leaving behind. And they're not, just for the audience, they're not the best guys. They're not. 
they're not. There's all the sort of kidding that happens when you have a bunch of straight men. And, and I mean, the whole situation. So Meryl Streep's got a bruise on her face because mm-hmm. her dad has hit her. Right. Um, and so she asks Nick and Mike, which is Robert De Niro's character, um, if he, they, she can stay at their trailer while they're gone. Because they're both leaving off for the army, and she's like, "I can't be like the next there day anymore." Right? It's it's not the next day; it's like forty eight hours later because right. they go on their deer hunt. Right, they go on the deer hunt after the wedding, and they're still wearing their their wedding clothes. Yes, uh, all of them go on the deer hunt except, of course, John Savage, who is busy bedding his wife. He is we we come to find at least with his wife a virgin. They have not yeah. had sex, uh, which is his great shame, apparently. Um, we see uh, Chris Walken and Meryl Streep's character are clearly dating. Now, everybody kisses everybody in this movie. It's, it's a little confusing. Right. In this, yes, in, in this community, it's very hands and mouth on. There's a lot of handsiness in this film. But if... you can see Robert De Niro watching Meryl Streep uh-huh. clearly with infatuation. Right. Also, you can see Robert De Niro watching Walken right. with a very similar thing and vice versa. Right. M- more vice versa. Walken seems to be trying, to, his character seems to be trying to set them up almost at almost, one point. Almost, yes. When he's trying to get them to dance. And you can see that her affection vacillates at times. Yes. Although she clearly is more attracted to Walken than she is to. I don't, I think she might feel safer. Mm-hmm. With Chris Watkins character, okay. but be more attracted to Robert. And De Niro's she's trying character. to earlier in the film hide out at their trailer because she's yeah. trying to get away from her dad, who is a. That's what I said. Yes, yeah, she yeah, asks a well fall you're down. Yes, not even aware where he is, drunk, drunk, and just hauls off and hits her. So during, like I said, during this wedding, right. she's got a black eye, and um, she catches the bouquet, uh-huh. and at that point, Nick blurts out, "Will you marry me?" Right, and she back. says yes. She said he says if I come back, and then he like corrects himself, and he's like when when we come back, uh, and she says yes, and it's very much like what you what I think like small town is right. Like he's he's gonna give me a good life. He'll protect me. You know, we'll be able to have kids, and you know. He works in the mill, so he's got a good job, and yeah. you know, I mean, it's it 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 felt more like this is what's projected uh-huh. rather than this is what I dream of. <laughs> like, I don't think that she dreams of marrying any of these men, but this is her life. This is the best that she can do for where she is. Yeah, but I think she genuinely likes these men. And oh, these... I think she loves both of them. I think that they could live in a happy throuple together. Right. <laughs> yeah, they could. Yeah, but I there's this weird kind of layers of bonding because they're bonding with her and at the same time bonding with each other. For there's one scene, and again, this is everything in in this first hour leads up to the wedding. Yeah, is the wedding, mm-hmm. and then after the wedding directly, which is directly the, yeah. when they go hunting for for deer. And um, the uh, there's a scene early on where the kind of bond between De Niro and Walken comes out where he yeah, says... Yeah, De Niro right. really puts up with everybody because he loves Nick. Right. I mean, and he says that, basically. And he's not a social animal. He's, he's not. He doesn't care for people at all. As a matter of fact, he 
you know, there's a later on in the hunting scene, um, Walken's character is trying to humanize him, trying to get him to, to socialize with the other characters because he doesn't want to be there with him. He doesn't like the fact that basically... Well, they're fucking jerk-offs. They are, mean, and they go out in the woods, they get drunk at this rickety, rickety cabin. 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 <laughs> You're going to do it. Um, <laughs> it was a struggle. Struggle was real. Um, this rickety cabin where basically the rest of the guys stay around Getting drunk, sometimes prowling around and shooting at things in random. Just shooting off at, of the porch. Yeah, like, don't do that, guys. Yelling at each other. Um, at one point later on in the film, uh, what's his name's character? Who brings a handgun for some reason? Well, he, at the second time, not the first time that, uh, that they, we know of. Well, they mentioned he has the handgun He's, on him all yes, the time. Yes. Um, uh, which is Stan, or Stosh, I guess. Stosh, uh, John Cazale. He goes by. Uh, has like a what a thirty eight or something, and everyone he's got a little revolver, and right. then he's got an even smaller revolver later. <laughs> and they're like, for what? And he's like, just in case. We're like, what? What do you expect to happen to you? You're going out to, to the you? woods with rifles. You're going to get by a deer. Handgun on you. Yeah, it's yeah. just weird. Um, but ba- we should say back at the before they go hunting, two uh-huh. things happen. Um, other than Nick and Linda basically getting engaged. There is a toast where the bride and groom drink out of this two-headed cup, and if you don't spill a drop, you're going to have a successful life. She spills a drop. She spills a she drop. Spills it's, two drops. It's unseen. You don't yeah. see it. Um, it's, I mean, they don't see it. We are shown a, show, a close-up of the lace on her dress right. with two drops of red wine on them. And I wonder if those two drops are supposed to represent the two characters who don't do as well. I don't know. Uh, it's or just, his two legs. Right. Oh, spoiler. Um, I'm not making light of that, but I'm just saying. No, it is two it, drops, and we don't know what... But it's not a good portent. They've literally just said it's not a good portent. I know. What <laughs> I needed is a three-note motif. Dun-dun-dun. <laughs> like, and yeah. then they're at the VFW hall, so a uh-huh. Green Beret comes in to drink at the bar, and Mike is real aggressive trying uh-huh. to get him to tell him what the war is like and this that and the other they buy him drinks but he's his only response to them is fuck it now these characters and they are hammered, hammered. well at they're this hammered point. at this point but there's also an element of it almost feels like although i don't trust these people are literate enough to have done it these guys and that's no insult it's just that this is not part of their world it's almost like people who grew up reading uh, Kipling or something and had this vision of what war is going to be like. Well, I think that everybody has a vision of wars, what right. war is going to be like if they were raised with television in the United States. Yeah, because I mean, they're saying things like... MASH is on television, right? Like, Kill a few for me. Yeah. But I mean, not like MASH was about people suffering in war. They really had this... And maybe it goes back to television shows like, you know... Um, I forget the one with the, that came to mind that my dad used to watch called Combat or something with Vic oh, Morrow. okay. I thought where, you meant the co- comic one. No, no. Hogan's um, Heroes is what I was thinking. Where every week is about, you know, going into a different town in Europe and, and you know, shooting up the locals and whatever, you know. Ugh, but um, but they have this vision of it, and I think that they really figure it's going to be that way. Now, but they, they also have this hyper-masculinity that goes along right. with it. And like I said, and the only thing that this... Soldier says, fuck it. And he says it three times. Right. And Mike wants to get, like, in his face, but they he, they pull him back. Because he feels like he's There's being insulted or something. There's a lot of body blocking in this right. movie. A lot of men caging other men with their own bodies to keep them from hitting each other. It's real. 
There's also an interesting moment to me where George Zunda, his character, John, who's a big, heavyset guy, big guy, is saying, well, you know I would go with you, but it's my knees. You know, I can't go because of my knees. And then we spend about half an hour watching him dance wildly with yeah, Well, that else. doesn't necessarily mean that his knees are I mean, good. I, but I, he, they actually wouldn't, looking at his body, uh, they wouldn't have taken him. But I'm the draft wasn't on yet. His excuses, at the same time, were just sort of... But also, he's running a business. Like, that bar is his. I'm like, "Mm, you don't want to go over there. It's a hellhole. Y'all, it's a (gasps) hellhole. Well, it's more of a hellhole than we thought. At the beginning of the film, it's really, really bad. And then John Savage gets in a car and drives away, drunk off his ass with his new wife. So I'm very glad they didn't die horribly. Uh, here in this scene, because that's what could have happened. Robert De Niro strips naked and runs through the town. We don't know why. He's very drunk. And then Nick catches up with him and throws a jacket over him, and they're sitting sort of <laughs> in a... They're, they're sitting at the base of a basketball hoop, which means they're probably on a school, which means Robert De Niro is definitely going to get picked up as a sex offender because he is well, nude on his school. Also, I love the little, the little bit of business where Christopher Walken takes one of his discarded items of clothes, namely Robert it's De Niro's... jacket. Un- I, I thought it was his underwear. No, it was jacket. And he, he like, lies on the floor before he... Is, oh, yeah, like, no, you're right, a, that part, yes. Uh, he before puts, he sits down. Yes, De Niro is sprawled <laughs> nude on the ground, and, yeah, Chris Walken, like lays something down before he sits down right <laughs> and it's just there's a there's a it's not that because they're all kind of uncouth at this point all these uh, characters yeah but Nick is probably the softest he's the most civilized because he, he even talks about how much he loved trees but loves That's trees the thing. And, he's talking about how he loves uh, trees how he loves hunting how he loves this place right. and how please don't leave him behind no matter what happens even if he dies, don't leave him in Vietnam. Bring him back. Right. That is his plea here. And, and that is scene. the impetus for the third act of I the I wanted film. to reference before, which is where De Niro's character like, admits that he's only putting up with these other fools because of his That was friend. actually, yeah, that was earlier. Yeah. He says that at the yeah, very He says that earlier, but I mean, that was yeah. what I was trying to bring the point back yeah. to that one. Is that, yeah, yeah, they are very close. Uh-huh. They're basically like brothers. Right. Um, yeah, in another time, they may be in a relationship. I do think that there is real love, whatever that yeah, is between I, I, these two. I don't know that they would, like... And again, we'll discuss that when it comes up to the point where, like, I don't think De Niro's character is necessarily sexual at all. But we'll go over that. I, I would have a counter-argument to that when we but get we there. Will, yeah. So, um, they end up all going out hunting... And, yeah, well, the three of them act like fools at the cabin. Uh De Niro and Walken kind of go off on their own, Uh and they do end up shooting. And that's another thing is De Niro constantly is saying, you've got to kill the deer with one shot. It's important that you kill the deer with one shot. He really sees this as almost a sacred act. He's um, very serious about it. He takes it very seriously and is responsible about it. Um he does end up killing a deer, and then they come back singing, probably still drunk or drunk again, uh, with the. I'm gonna make another break for it. With the deer on the hood of the car, mm. and they go to uh, Welsh's bar, which is, like I said, that's their buddy's bar. He owns it or runs it, anyways. 
I it's think unclear he owes to it. me. Because he's constantly running back and just pulling beards out for them for yeah, free. So he's I'm got guessing. the keys and yeah. he's, yeah, he works there. And then he plays uh, the piano for them a little bit. And it's, there's a little bit of a somber, like, we're all separating tomorrow. Right. And he plays, uh, was it Chopin's Nocturne? Number six. Which is funny because you wouldn't think of capable of it really, you know. I, you see, I don't have, I don't well, hold because these the people first in hour, such low regard because no, I was raised in a trailer park, so let's not. <laughs> it's What I mean is that he's almost, any time that any one of them shows any kind of depth, the other ones, and I don't say they don't have it, what I mean is that they, no, chase, they, do it, wanna, they chase it out of it. Yeah, there is a bit of a toxic right. masculinity of... And we've seen this before because Stosh wanted um, to borrow some boots when they got right. up hunting because he didn't have his shit together. And De Niro's like, no, you always fucking do this and I'm I'm sick of it. Right. So if you don't have the boots you need, then you don't have boots. That's too fucking bad for you. I'm I'm done. Right. He's not and then any uh, Stosh turns around and throws some homophobic slurs at him. Well, and then that's when... And, and, which Nick, uh, and Nick goes, as Christopher Walken's character, is like, you're a fucking out of line, you need to shut the fuck and up. And Walken's character I mean, is defending him against the accusation, which makes me wonder again about their relationship, because what Stosh brings out is... I don't know that he defends him as much as just, like, shut the fuck up. Well, but he's saying, Stosh is saying, because Stosh, his whole raison d'etre is... To be a dick. Is to be a dick, but also that he has to sort of score with women. That's true. He does. Constantly. He's constantly he's talking about. And he him. says he's trying to always Kinda, trying to right. hook up uh, De Niro with people, and, and De Niro do doesn't do that. And my sense is uh, it's not because De Niro doesn't want to have sex with these women, because he doesn't want to have sex with anyone. I think he doesn't want to have sex with these women because he actually wants to have sex with either mm-hmm. Linda or Nick or both of them. Right. And so he doesn't need to go fuck the random redhead at the bar. Like, that. he doesn't need that. Yeah. That's not his motivation in his life. That's uh, an interesting reading. I don't know. I'm, I'm sort of struck Because I do think that there are people, many people, uh-huh. of all genders, who, when offered cheap, meaningless sex, go ahead and give that a miss. And it's not I don't need it. Not it, because I don't, I'm not attracted to it. But because I don't want that. What I, the reason why I have that the other opinion is that he seems to be such a fiercely solitary person. Yeah, no, there is that. And he doesn't even particularly... And he doesn't even he try may to be an asexual person. He doesn't communicate with people either. It's like that one scene where he's speaking almost mammoth speak, right? He's talking to, to Stosh and he pulls out the bullet from his gun and says, this means this. And Stosh is joking with him, like, nobody knows what you're talking about. Oh, I totally understood him. I mean, yeah, well, I understood him, but because we're <laughs> given enough of his character to understand yeah. that he doesn't feel the I need think to. that he is just, yeah, he's more insular and solitary, right. but I don't think that necessarily means asexual. Right. He could be an asexual person. I don't think we get enough of that side of him to know for sure. Right. Um, he's not an openly sexual person. Right, he's not that. an overtly sexual person. He's not putting it on front street like his friends are for right. show. For show, sure. yeah. No, if you want to believe that I'm gay because I don't fuck every woman that comes down the street, right. what the fuck ever? I don't I'm care. I'm just going to shoot a deer. Yeah, I'm going to go. I'm going to go hunt, and that's going to be that. I'm going to live my life. I don't really give a fuck what you are saying about me. And then fucking smash cut. 
So we go from Chopin right. to the middle of the fucking jungle. And this is, again, one of those things where in a screenwriting class, if it was being workshopped, they would have thrown it out. Because I'm going, wait, suddenly we're in, in and it's so abrupt. I liked it. And I liked it because that must have been what it was like for them. That kind of abrupt. That jarring kind of. Um, what's the word where you're, you don't know. Um, Disorienting? No, uh, culture shock, like oh, okay. a culture shock, uh, but a shock to the system where everything is different, everything is too loud, there are guns, there's fire, there are grenades going off, there are helicopters overhead. I it, I liked that switch uh-huh. because I think that that must have been what it was like for these guys. Now, this is, now granted, uh-huh. we've skipped a bunch of time. We don't know how much time has passed. There's no... Uh-huh indication time-wise um they've already clearly gone through basic training which is usually what three months or something like that Uh they're like in it and they've been separated um the first person we see is mike and he uh ends up killing a um a rival soldier with a flamethrower after witnessing that soldier doing atrocious things to right. the native Vietnamese people, the villagers. And that's something that we should mention because it was a controversy I remember at the time, the portrayal of the Vietnamese in this film. Yes. You see them throwing hand grenades into rooms, or in this case, like a bunker like full a bunker, of families yeah. hiding. The Russian roulette scenes, you, you, you don't yeah. really get a sense that they have a legitimate cause. And yeah, I mean, no, they, they're just they are bad. One step above wild animals. They are. And, and I yeah. understand the criticism of that. Mm-hmm. I also never felt, and this might be because, A, I know Vietnamese people. I have right. some um, understanding of the history of the Vietnam conflict. Right. My father was um, in the Navy and served during the war. I never looked at those characters and went, that's the Vietnamese. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. I looked at those characters and went, that's like nine assholes. And they yeah, happen and to be in Vietnam. I, I they happen that... to be Vietnamese people. But I didn't, I didn't right. pick up as we're saying this about all of the Vietnamese. And we do see South Vietnamese people. Right. We do see them, but they're victims, more, more or less. Or, and, well, right. they scoop John at the end. Right. Or the, the Stephen at the end. He, they, the, he, they basically get him to safety. So, um, but I remember at the time there was a great deal of controversy because yeah. the, the notion was you're putting this on film and all you're seeing is that these are hostile, savage yes. people who kill Yes, so we see that one soldier and then uh-huh. the next thing we see is... Mike and Steven and Nick are all back together again, and they've mm-hmm. been captured. So they're prisoners of war. They're in the middle of nowhere. They're not in a... That's the other thing that I think speaks for this. Mm-hmm. They're not at a base. They're not at any kind of military installation. No. It's just these rogue dudes who are ho- keeping an eye on these prisoners of war. And by keeping mm-hmm. an eye on them, I mean are murdering them. They're they're gamblers. And once again, it, uh, and they're n- none of them are wearing any kind of yes, insignia. Yes, you don't see them wearing uniforms necessarily. You don't. So once again, this feels like they fell into the hands of bad people. Right. I I don't read it as. And now, granted, maybe that's also. I don't. I'm not racist against Vietnamese people. So I guess if you have bad connotations, well, you think could about say when this, film this was is released, all of too. these people. There were actual veterans. 
uh, watching this film. Of course. And so, I mean, it's a... It's but still now. There was a the generation of Vietnam films that came out right after Vietnam. Yeah, this was years. very close to Vietnam. And then you think about another ten years, and you're getting Rambo and yeah. these kind of really weird fantasies about Vietnam. Yeah. But this was relatively close to it, and I think that's what also spurred the controversy because there are people yeah. going like, I don't know what this is portraying. Yeah. There's such a clear good and evil, or that this is. Vietnam was portrayed as such a, and it did that with Apocalypse Now too, where it was just this kind of well, yeah, and, and era of madness. And Apocalypse Now is right. very surreal, and yes. the, and their response because they obviously the filmmakers got this critique, they were like, "This is, this is a parable." And mm-hmm. later, the bad guys that you see, even though they're in Vietnam, they're in Saigon, right. are French. And Chinese. Yes, exactly. And it's made very clear that they are French and Chinese and not Vietnamese people that are taking that's advantage of Which is of a very good thing. point, actually. Um, exactly so I good. think that that's, that speaks at least in their favor that they were not intentionally being racist. Mm-hmm. I mean, Although, I'm a white I, person, so I don't get to say. I don't know. I, I think <laughs> there might have been a lot of weird, hard feeling going on. Oh, I'm sure. A lot sure. of people just having experience. Because I don't, I think. And once again, yeah. what, what I do want to say is, there are no credible sources to say that anybody was tr- was forced to do the things that they are forced to do right. in the war. There are n- like literally zero credible, thorough sources that prisoners of war were me- made to do the horrific things that these characters are made to do. Right. Um, and so I choose to look at it as. It, almost like deliverance. I don't think that everyone in the South is like this. I don't think that everyone in Vietnam or the North Vietnamese were like this. I think they fell into some bad people. Right. I don't think this is a typical POW no, this, I don't uh, experience. So. I don't know that this film was trying to represent it that way. I don't think so either, but I think yeah. people were upset that that is how it was going to come across. Okay, yeah. Um, so... Th- what ends up happening is they're caught by the this group of people. And once again, we presume that they're Vietnamese. They're speaking Vietnamese, right. but they don't have insignia. They don't have uniforms on. They're in this, like, hut over this river. And, oh, I wanted to say something about the hunting scene real quick. Okay, let's go. Mostly because I want to say this word. It takes place in the Monongahela Valley, because mm-hmm. uh, we were talking about how beautiful it was. And it is really beautiful. It is gorgeous. It's also where the uh, current season of the Adventure Zone Amnesty is taking place. Oh, really? Because they're from West Virginia, and it it's in that whole, like, that whole river goes through all of those areas. So this is actually filmed in the Ohio side, um, but it also goes through West Virginia. But yes, the Monongahela Valley. Monongahela. It's beautiful. So if you just want to look for those scenes, very beautiful. Uh, back to Vietnam. Uh, now they're held in a weird they're kind ha- of. They're like underneath. Underwater, right? In the water. They're in the. the, the there's like a. a and there's a of, trap door, and then right. like a hut above them. Yeah. Right, where. Right. Two people at a time are being forced to play Russian roulette against each other. It and this scene is not very long. It's intense, but it's not very yeah. long. Um, they end up Robert De Niro and John Savage's character get pulled up 
And John Savage's character is losing it. He's losing it. Completely losing he's it. He's sort of disassociating. Um, like, he's not quite there. Uh-huh. Uh, and De Niro is trying very hard to get him to come back. Look at me. Right. Come back. Do what they tell you to do, and then you'll be fine. He ends up tilting the gun up, which is good because the bullet's there. Right. And it ends up during grazing his of, head of during Russian their ra- game of Russian roulette. So he we, ends up shooting himself. In this game. Yes. They're being just thrown out. Just again, thrown into what, the... what I wanted to describe is it's like there's a hut above the river. Yeah. And there's these bamboo cages beneath the hut where they're being stored up until they get pulled up, pulled up. to participate. And then in the there's game. a pier yeah. to another cage where the dead bodies are going. There's a bunch of rats down there. There's carrion rats, which is horrifying. Uh, that and, well, they're river rats, so right. I don't think they. I think they weren't carrion rats until all of a sudden. Well, I mean, but they are now functioning them. as they're eating the bodies, right? Um, that's not their fault. <laughs> that's Food. Not their fault. Right. Um, and because he sort of pulled his shot uh-huh. and ended up just grazing him, he, grazing himself, he doesn't right. die. They put him in one of the cages at the end of that with a bunch of dead bodies and rats. Where, and John Savage, God bless him, has a rat literally crawling, crawling on his on face his while face. he's reading his lines. Yeah, it's well bad. There you go. And <laughs> then De Niro is basically telling Nick, look, we're going to make them put three bullets in the gun. Uh-huh. We're each going to go. And then when I fucking tell you, you're going to go after that guard and I'm going to start shooting them. And he's one shot, one killing them. Like, right. that's the plan. He's gonna, He's like, if we don't overtake them uh-huh. and kill them and get out of here, we're going to die here. Well, Those are our options. Right. So if we try and we die, we're dead. If we don't try, we're definitely dead. Well, so we've it. got to do They've something. got nothing to lose, no. which is really where you don't want people. No. <laughs> you don't want to put them in that position. Right. So... Nick shoots himself, or pulls the trigger, and yeah. there's no bullet. Right. De Niro shoots himself, no bullet. It's the other way around. It's De Niro, then it's Walken. Right. And then it goes back to De Niro, and that's when he makes his move. And they do end up overtaking the guards uh-huh. um, and getting out. Now, I have to ask, well, maybe because you read material on the film. Yeah. This actor playing the Vietnamese... Uh, I don't know anything about him. Who's uh, running the gambling game. Yes. I'm under the suspicion he's that this familiar was, to me. he was done real time, and he's slapping the shit out oh, of these two. I did read a thing. Okay, because he they is did end up the recasting it because yes, he is actually hitting them, and the first guy they cast couldn't like couldn't bring himself, bring to, do himself to do it. Um, so what was they the... didn't? Chris Walken didn't know he was going to get actually oh. slapped. So when you see that look on his face, uh-huh. that's real. Wow. Uh, De Niro and the director did know. Well, De Niro looks like he's sucking it up right. a lot of the time. And right. you can see but it De Niro and the director are sort of in cahoots on a lot of this stuff. They didn't tell Chris Walken. So when Chris Walken, yeah, gets slapped, and this dude is slapping them he across is slapping the face, the and he is doing it. He's um, slapping them really hard. And yeah. it's not just the sound effect. You can see the flesh you flying see the, away yeah. from the, from and the, the look of, of the shock, blow. because right. it doesn't matter even if you know you're going to get slapped. You get yeah. slapped in the face, and you're, there's a visceral reaction to that. Yeah. Um, uh, my visceral reaction is to burst into tears. Well, <laughs> so. you, you know when you know that it's actually happening? You see the blinking. 
Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's yeah. Like, because your eyes water. Involuntarily. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's, so it was just, that scene is very yeah. intense. I would warn people about that in particular. So they get out and they they get Stephen out and mm-hmm. then they like basically push a big tree that has fallen down the river. So they're holding onto the tree and going with the river and just looking for an out. And a bridge, they find a like a bridge that's sort of low enough that they can grab on and there are helicopters going over. So they call for help and Nick gets pulled in. Steven's too too weak to pull himself up. Right. And so Robert De Niro, Mike, wakes, waits back with him, and then they both fall back into the water. Now, when Stephen falls back into the water, it's from such a distance that it, it breaks both of his well, legs. Well, he says that. He, he, he hits some rocks. rocks. Um, now, I got a question for you, though, mm-hmm. again, because I'm relying on you now as a source of information. Uh, I know everything. This looked convincingly like these are these two guys doing this. I, that I don't because know. Because the that shot from the camera is on their faces. Yeah. This is not a special effect. It really looks like they dropped them from a helicopter. They they may have. I doubt they did it right into a river, though, because yeah. what happened to his character could yeah. very well have happened. Um, he ends up with, uh, looks like compound fractures of both legs. Right. And so Mike is carrying him and carries him through the jungle to the uh, friendly lines, finds the South, South, I'm sorry, not Koreans, South Vietnamese, mm-hmm. and gives, like, sort of hands over right. Stephen to them. I think this film would make a great double bill of deliverance, you know. <laughs> and then that's... my leg at the river. That's like a, that's it. Uh-huh. And then the next thing we see is Nick at a hospital. Uh-huh. He looks fine, but they're asking him questions, and, uh, like, they start with, his full name, which right. is not Nick. It's Nika Nor Shevatarevich. God bless you. And they're like, is that a Russian name? And he's like, no, it's American. Right. But then he can't name his parents. Yeah. And he has trouble remembering the city that he's and from. There's an interesting directorial choice here because... I think that he's aware, and like a lot of this film, it's told like a reverie, almost. There's not connecting scenes telling us what's happening in between. So he's looking at the double amputee on the cot in front of him, and I think he's flashing on what happens to John Savage's character. Like, he knows, and we don't know yet, that this guy's lost both of his legs. Yeah. But there's a sense of guilt because, as we learn later on, he starts sending money to him. Yes, but also... A severe am- amnesia, some right. sort of stress-induced amnesia. So right. he doesn't know really who he is. That could be the case. He remembers yeah. Clareton, Pennsylvania, because he goes to call Linda, but he can't follow through with it. And he keeps her picture in his wallet, which is one of the strange things. It's the exact same picture yeah. that Mike has in his <laughs> wallet. Which is funny because that was a conversation with us too. Like, how did he keep his wallet with all this yeah. going on? I was, yeah, I was like, you are a POW. You are under a hut in a river. Right. How do you still have <laughs> your wallet? Kind of so he ends up going AWOL and goes to the red light district. Um, a prostitute tries to sleep with him, but there's a baby crying in the room, so he can't do it. Which, uh, good for everyone yeah. involved. Sorry uh, you're not making your money. So wrong. But like, it's, it's so a bad scene. Everything about that scene is wrong. Um, but meanwhile, it's not like she could make money any other way given the situation in Saigon. Yes. But, uh, and then he hears gunshots and he goes towards them. Don't do that. Now we should point out this, he's AOL at this time. A- I said, yeah, he went yeah, AOL. He goes AOL. Right. Um, 
I will not say A-W-O-L. He goes AWOL, <laughs> absent without leave. But I don't need, you don't need to spell it out. <laughs> she okay. spells it out later, and I, it bothered me. Why? Because nobody says A-W-O-L. That takes forever. Well, no. I, well, okay, so generational differences with us, because that's the way that it used to be done on television and movies and stuff. Uh, AWOL. A-W-O-L. Sounds like the internet company is there. Yes. It's, right. it's too many so... If there's a W in it, there's too many fucking <laughs> Nobody needs that much okra. Uh, and he happens upon a Frenchman who has my favorite line in the whole movie, which is, if you say no to champagne, you say no to life. Because like, no, no matter, you know, re- uh, regardless of the circumstances, he's still French. And he takes him into a roulette game going on, uh, run by uh, Chinese gamblers. Gamblers, yeah. yeah. And there are white people in the crowd. Mm. Also in the crowd is Mike. Mike does not see Nick when he comes in, but he does see when Nick fucking loses his mind, grabs the gun away from the dude that has it, shoots at him, shoots at the other dude, shoots at himself, and then there's a riot, because we were gambling on this dipshit, (laughs) and then he is rushed out. Mike tries to catch up with him and the Frenchman, but cannot do that. So now I need to ask you a question as Ms. studied abnormal psychology. What the hell is going on in this scene? What attracts them both to see this after their experience? What was it that you... that Because I'm going... They showed this scene to you for a reason, right? Yeah. In your class. And That wasn't the scene that they oh, showed. No, I mean this, this scene from this film. Okay. But as I'm looking at this, I'm going, what kind of damage happens to a person's head to where they go back to... To oh, it. Like, it's, uh, a, it's a PTSD thing. You can have severe avoidance behaviors with PTSD. Right, okay. The the opposite of that can also happen, which is that you seek out that thing because um, it's sort of a way to tell your brain that it's not as bad as your brain thinks it is. Now, in this case, it's as fucking bad (laughs) as your brain thinks it is. Uh We do see several people who shoot themselves in the head and die. Right. We see piles of bodies. And that's this it. is yeah, not The Frenchman a, mentions that to him. There are bodies just dropped out just of dro- the They yeah, just yeah. chuck them out. Yeah. Um, this is not a safe or reasonable thing to do. Now, all of these players are getting paid significant amounts of money uh, that's why they're doing it, because they're fucking desperate. So, capitalism. Also, uh, I imagine a great deal of money for, you know, a couple of seconds of for, yes. stupidity, frankly, not even courage, I wouldn't say. Right, but if you've got nothing to lose. Right, exactly. And the alternative is that your whole family is, their whole their lives are destroyed forever. Sometimes they get the money even if you die. So, I mean, it's really a shitty, It's it's all bad. Well, I, I, I'm sure the message of that is just how really cheap and horrible it was for somebody. Right. I mean, life is being portrayed as really cheap in Saigon. Well, yeah, yeah. So then we have another sort of smash cut. So yeah. Mike chases them down but can't catch them up, right. can't, can't catch up. So Mike knows that Nick is alive uh-huh. and also that his brain is a little bit broken because he watched him act out in a way that was not... Right. Nick-like or person-like, frankly. Because Nick didn't want to, when the actual Russian roulette game was taking place on the river, 
he was really reluctant to put that gun to his head the second time. Yeah, he didn't time. want to fucking do that. So now he's, he's there's something right. that's happened. So, and then, and he knows that he passed Stephen off to the South Vietnamese, but he does not know what happened to them. Okay. And then he goes back. And he's trying to keep a low profile. Like, he doesn't, they're going to have a big party for him, and he doesn't let the cab stop. He makes him take him to a motel, uh. and then he goes back the next day. Um, he is very doting on Linda. Uh-huh. He goes and seeks out Angela, um, who is Stephen's wife, because he hears that Stephen is still alive and she knows where. So he goes to her, and she is in the depths of what appears to be both postpartum depression and depression based on Stephen, because there's a little boy now. Uh We don't, once again, we don't know how much time has passed. It's it's been a couple of years, but we don't know how much time has passed. Um, My sense is that it's been like six years, because at the end, he goes back in 1975, and he hasn't been back for that long before that. He does get Angela after coercing her, even Mm -hmm. though she can't speak to give him a phone number of a place. She writes it down. She writes it down and hands it to him. And then that's when we see, he calls Stephen and we see where Stephen is and he's at a VA hospital for uh, amputees. Right. Um, He's lost both of his legs and it looks like the use of his... Left arm. Was it his left arm? So he's got... Uh, very early electric uh, wheelchair because uh, he does have use of it his It looks right like the arm. damn thing probably weighs 100 pounds. Yeah, I'm sure. Pounds, because they're, yeah, later we see up people carrying them up and downstairs. I'm like, y'all need to install some ramps. There was no ADA. No. no. Um, so that's when we know, we see where he is. And, and Mike's like, when are you coming home? And, and Stephen's like, I'm going to stay here because it's great. They've got like bowling and basketball and Stephen's clearly and not Grace ready. Grace Kelly came to visit us the other day. Right, Grace Kelly came to visit. Stephen's clearly not ready to return to life where this is his new normal. Right. Uh, and it is safe in the hospital. Uh, I think that's one of the other things that's contributing to Angela's like severe depression. Like when we see Angela, it's like, oh, she hasn't left that bed in a week. Right. And she really cannot. Now, I couldn't quite speak figure out what she was doing with the radio. Was she? It seemed like she was doing something with the radio. Know, I didn't notice like, that. Yeah. I didn't notice that. Um, and Mike finally goes to visit him, and Stephen shows him a drawer full of hundred dollar bills. He says, "Someone in Saigon is sending me this money, and I don't understand it." And Mike's like, it's Nick. Right. Uh, and so Mike, like, drags Stephen home. He's like, you're going home. Like, this, right. you can't hide here forever. You have to come home. Your wife needs you. You need to come back. You need to figure out how you're your going to live your life. You. You've got a kid. You've got right. a wife. You've got to figure it out. Um, and... Then Mike flies to Saigon. And again, that's which a weird, is falling. It's a bad time to go to Saigon. It's a weird jump cut because we're immediately in, in Vietnam. And, and yes. It, that's very much how a lot of the film runs. Now, oh, so we should it. say, during this time, uh-huh. Meryl Streep has basically said, why don't you and I comfort each other and be together 
It's clear that they both still love Nick, whatever that means, but they're here now. And so she's looking for comfort from him. They do end up sleeping together at least once. Right. Um, After some unsuccessful tries. Yes. Uh, And so that relationship is sort of in a weird... It's a, it's a it's a weird relationship. She's still living at the trailer with him, uh-huh. uh, and they do actually. There is oh, and there's also one more hunting scene. They go back out to the right. Monongahela. There we go. Forest. We got it right this time. But we got to remember that Mike doesn't like hunting with all these other guys. He only tolerates it because Nick's there, and Nick's not there. And now he does not tolerate it. At he all. does not tolerate it at all. Um, and. Yeah, Stosh has brought his stupid little gun. And um, De Niro has gone out to the forest by himself, like he would go with Nick before, to shoot. Um, He cannot bring himself. He shoots up when he sees a buck. Yeah, he has no stomach for it anymore. He can't shoot it. And then he goes over to like a waterfall and just starts yelling, okay. Like, real loud, and then it echoes back at him. And then he goes back to the cabin, and Stosh has his gun pointed at... Yes, which is... Yeah. At the... At the at George's character. And he's like, what do you... Th-? And he, like, goes up, and he pulls it out of his... Like, he's pissed. And he pulls it out of his hand, and, no, and Stosh De Niro, goes... Right. Yeah, De Niro. And Stosh goes, what do you think, it's loaded? And De Niro points it at the ceiling and fires it, and it is, in fact, fucking loaded. Mm-hmm. And then he points it back at Stosh, and he's like, do you think this is fucking funny? Like, he's not having it. No. <laughs> like, hey, we don't point guns at each other unless we're planning on killing each other. Do you fucking want to die right now? Uh, and that was an interesting scene to me, too, because he points the gun at Stosh's head mm-hmm. and pulls the trigger. Mm-hmm. He could have killed him. He could have. And that's kind of what the the reaction from the other two guys, for the first time, they're just shaking out of their alcoholic stupor now. Before that, Stosh was such a, a jerk. He's chasing around a deer. If you remember, he shoots it. Oh, yeah, it. he shoots it. Now, he practically travels over it. He's chasing it, running after the deer. He nearly trips over it because... And then he shoots the thing, and it's just suffering. Yeah. He shoots it, like, in the leg or something, and it mm. falls into a pond, and it's just sort of yeah, the, the thrashing. Might drown. Um, yeah. And it's just, he has no... He has he doesn't understand what it is to take a life. Right. And and how serious He has no is. respect for life, no. I think, is, is what it is. Because his life is about, you know, trying to pick up the, the drunkest girl at the bar. Is, yeah. right. <laughs> I, I don't get it. So, um... Then we have Mike going back to Saigon, Saigon and finding Nick. He looks for Nick. He finds the Frenchman, and he gives the Frenchman a shit ton of money, and he's like, mm-hmm. fucking take me to the American. You know who the fuck I'm talking about. Take me to him. He finally does. He takes him to a Chinese man who says, give me this money, give me this money. Then A lot of money. Passes it's a hands. lot of money. He's handing out thousands of dollars right. just to get in front of Nick. And he can't get through like he finds Nick but he can't get through to him. Nick that is not he's not 
Nick anymore. Right. He he clearly has amnesia. He doesn't really recognize Mike. That's what I was getting to sense. He I doesn't. Don't know if that was he does or... at the end, but he doesn't uh-huh. at the beginning, and that's why. And then De Niro says, "Put me in the game," and he pays even more money to go into the game. And he sits across from Nick, and he's uh-huh. like, "We got to go home. I'm going to take you home. We, like, remember this." And he's saying people's names, and he's. Like, look in my eyes. It's me. It's Mike. I'm here. We see track marks all along Nick's arms. So mm-hmm. he's cl- clearly been doing just a stupid amount of heroin. He's very gaunt, very pale. You don't know that Chris Walken can get pale. And he gets, like, kind of creepy ghosty pale. Yeah, he does. Um, And De Niro puts the gun up to his head, pulls the trigger, and it doesn't shoot him. That he keeps trying to talk Nick down. Nick finally like has this sense of recognition. He said, you know, about the trees. Remember the trees, right? And how much you love the trees. He smiles. He it looks like he kind of knows what's happening. He pulls the trigger, and he loses. And then we have. Uh, Mike holding Nick's head and just crying and screaming. Which is a... It's a, it's a really good, like, well-acted scene. Well, but also, it's what happens in that scene is that he's finally admitting he loves him. He keeps telling him how Yes, I love him. you, I love, I you, love you. I lo- Yeah, yeah. And then back home, we see uh, the funeral. They're carrying... He, so he, he kept that promise to Nick that he would bring him home. He wouldn't leave him over there. Right. Uh, and then they all gather at the bar, and, um, and then they sing "God Bless America," which is another sort of point of contention. Mm-hmm. Uh, it starts with uh, what's his name, George, Zinda. in the kitchen singing it sort of to himself as he's cooking them breakfast, mm-hmm. um, and then Meryl Streep picks it up when he comes out, and then they all sing it together, and. Then they toast uh, to the memory of Nick and scene. I, I don't understand. That's uh, Speaking as a point of contention, as I was watching that, I'm going, I don't know what this is supposed to mean. I don't know if this is intended to be critical or if this is intended to be... It's It feels ironic. Right, like it was But being it's ironic. not played ironically. Right. So it's a little... Like, I don't think it is a statement on America. Uh-huh. But I could be wrong. <laughs> so that that is one yeah, thing I, where I, I'm like, this is an odd... So the final... Okay, so yeah, I'm going all the way down yeah. to the controversy uh, analysis um, part on the uh, coda of God Bless America. The final scene in which all the main characters gather and sing God Bless America became a subject of heated debate among critics when the film was released. It raised the question of whether the the conclusion was meant ironically or not. As a critique of patriotism as a critique of patriotism or as a payon to it. And it's unclear to me. I couldn't make out from it what the goal of the director was. I actually think that the director didn't have a full goal. I think he wanted them all to sing something because I think it reprises that That Chopin scene earlier. I think that this is what ended up 
I think they may have just tried it. I like George may have just started singing it because that's just what occurred to him right. to sing. And I don't know that it actually is it a good fit right. uh, because it, there's a question as to what it could mean. I, so mm. I don't know. Or maybe that was the ambiguity he was trying for because I can see in the context of the film where it could be ironic, you know, um, because there's such a heavy emphasis on these guys are American. They're living their own version of an American dream, right? Yeah. And then they go to defend their country because they keep referring to it as defending their country uh, or serving their yeah, country. Yeah, and America really, really did good over there. They're, he's getting right. Mike is getting when he comes back, and I'm like, what? Mm, yeah. <laughs> and when like, you know, all he wants to say is "fuck it." Right. He <laughs> wants <laughs> right? to be that vet in the he bar. He wants to be that vet in the bar. Like he gets it now. He's like, and oh. he even looks like the vet in the bar. He does a little bit. Yeah. Um, That's the other thing that I thought was interesting. Uh, for the rest of the movie, from the time he gets back, uh-huh. he's never out of uniform. Oh, uh, yeah, okay. He's wearing that uniform constantly, uh-huh. which I thought was a weird choice um, for him to go from a guy uh-huh. to then constantly wearing... Well, I, and I, like, I can see visually what that means. Uniform. Yeah, and they make fun of him because he has so many decorations. They're like, did you win the war yourself? You know, or did you... Did, but um, part of uh, that stands out in how it works. It stands out in contrast to everyone else. He comes back as a completely different creature who just cannot assimilate. But he never really was great at assimilating. No, he wasn't. And, and without Nick, he's going to be even worse at it because that was sort of his in. Right. Um, I will say there is... Um, this is from the Wikipedia article. Uh-huh. There is a section about a 1986 article um, by critic Robin Wood. This uh-huh. is on the homosocial bonding. Right. Uh, he viewed the film's homosexual tub- subtext. I don't think it's that sub subtext, <laughs> right. but in the film's central male love affair, Mike supposedly represents the powers of control and repression, uh-huh. whereas Nick stands for release and liberation. According to Wood, Nick uh, both is and knows himself to be in love with Mike, and Mike reciprocates that love but can't admit it even to himself. Now, he, And I'm like, I kind of get that. Right, okay. Here's where I'm going to digress from this particular uh, critic. In the end, Wood argues that Nick shoots himself because, quote, he has recognized that Mike offers nothing but a return to repression, and that seems like a shitty kill your gaze, mm. there's nothing but a closeted life for me, so I should die here I in Vietnam? Say as a what? regression, I would say that he can't go back to being what he was, maybe, would be a better way of putting it, because I don't... Yeah, but I, to say that, that it's, that it's, no, I don't think it's, it's because he's a repressed homosexual right. is a little bit... That feels gross to me. Right. Like, that feels... Like it's making his whole life very small. Oh no, we've yeah. we're recording so late, and you're gonna fall asleep. Yeah. No, no, I'm fine. <laughs> um, so I don't agree with that, but I do really actually like that the relationship between them yeah. and the fact that they don't really they don't know homo it. Right. 
some of the other characters are really do that a little bit, but that's kind of to be expected in 1968 in a steel mill town. Meanwhile, in the opening scene, after they've clocked out from their steelwork, they're shaking men's hands because they're going to go off to war, right? right? So they're shaking all these dudes' hands, these old-timers. Some of them are actively showering and nude. Mm. I don't need to shake your hand if you're nude. <laughs> but they're fine with it. So I'm like, there's this weird <laughs> sort of like... Yeah, I, I don't get it. I, I yeah, don't... but the relationship between Mike and Nick, I think they were both uh-huh. comfortable and safe within it. Right. Um, and I don't think they gave a fuck what anybody else thought about it. Yeah. And I do really think that Linda could have loved both of them. Right. And I think they really loved her, too. Like, I do think that that could have been a a group of three mm-hmm. that could have had a solid relationship. Right. But then Nick shot himself in the head, so I guess not. <laughs> no, there's lots of blood spurting, too. I was just looking at this oh. thing. Also, uh, quick little bit of trivia, that river where uh, the rats were, Kwai. They filmed this movie in Thailand. Oh, really? Yeah. Uh-huh. It was the River Kwai. Um, Bangkok sat in for Saigon. Uh-huh. Um, the um, St. Theodosius Russian Orthodox Cathedral in the Tremont na- neighborhood of Cleveland, Ohio... Hi, New Matt. If you're listening, so shout out to Ohio and Cleveland specifically. Um, the name plaque is clearly visible in one scene. The Lemco Hall is the VFW hall that the reception was at, I also thought, in yeah. Cleveland. Uh, U.S. Seal Central Furnaces, also in Cleveland. That's the opening scene, the mill, mill scenes. And then Bangkok, Sayoc, um, Mount Baker Snoqualmie National Forest and Nooksack Falls in the North Cascades Ridge of Washington for the deer hunting scenes. Oh, yeah, yeah, And Wyerton, West Virginia for mill and trailer shots. But the River Kwai was where they were in the, in the water. I thought that was interesting. So that's the deer hunter. Now, what did you think? Oh, you said you liked I it. I said I really, like, really what liked did you it. Think, what was your overall impression about the film? As kind of, because... I feel like I've been giving my overall impression for the last... I don't know what to say right now. Okay, so then we'll ignore I really liked it. I think it yeah. definitely deserved to win Best Picture. I liked it. I thought it was a more powerful film than The Godfather. Uh-huh. I think De Niro was weirdly old. But I do understand why they put him in it. Uh-huh. Uh, I like that Meryl Streep was given leeway to be not just something tells me there was a lot of improvisation on this film period that there was a lot of a lot of this felt very spontaneous in the beginning part of the film it felt almost as if you were watching a documentary um, well, The Deer Hunter was one of the first and most controversial major theatrical films to be critical of the American involvement in Vietnam it ended in Vietnam ended in 1975. This movie came out in 78. Mm. They started making it fucking right as soon. I mean, right. Oh, <laughs> and we should mention that too. The scenes about the fall of Saigon include actual footage from the fall of Saigon. 
which was really surprising. Yeah. Um. Oh, it was a novel. Uh-huh. It was novelized. Oh, okay. In 1978, based on a screenplay. I thought I had seen it as a book, so... And then there's a 1980 movie called The Last Hunter, an Italian film originally made as an unofficial sequel. I bet it's terrible. That's it just my guess. Uh, the Italian... Seems um, like it'd be a bad There's thing. a very funny story how uh, one of the guys uh, in a Facebook group I was in mentioned that there's a film called Silent Running that uh, was made by one of the technicians, Douglas Trumbull, who who uh, worked on 2001. And there were so many similarities in terms of style and things that the Italian uh, producers or distributors brought the same Italian actors who dubbed in 2001 and just made it the sequel. Oh, no. Even in, including, because there was a an act, a talking computer, very much like Hal. Okay. And they brought in the same actor who dubbed the Hal voice to dub in the voice here and made connections that didn't exist in the film. So they just incorporated it into, like, 2001 and its sequel. And this was not a sequel to 2001. Right. So, yes, the, the, the Italian, sometimes the German film industry were capable of very strange things when it came to dubbing and repackaging a film. Yeah. And uh, I... I... I think I said it before, but I'll say it again. The mm. director sees this as a parable, so mm. that's why. And then the writer Washburn was like, um, when when confronted with this, isn't how the Vietnamese treated their POWs and this, mm. that, and the other. He was like, I didn't do real research. I don't have time. I had to write this whole thing in a month. Mm. And I'm like, that seems like a long time, but okay, you do you, boo. <laughs> like, so there's a lot of finger pointing as to whose fault was. Whose fault was what? Whose fault was what? Um, so, yeah, I think that's... So you believe it was more affecting than watching something like The Godfather or... I really... the. I mean, the in terms of the films that you've seen were, so far, because you've seen a lot of movies from this yeah, period. The acting from this in this movie is spectacular. Um, it is... It, It doesn't need to be three hours and three minutes long. That's what I will say. That's okay. my biggest critique of this movie. You could edit this down and do 2.15 and it'd be fine. A 51-minute wedding and reception is indulgent. I understand that he did that to really show you what these men were leaving behind. Right. He didn't need a 51-minute scene to do that. I really don't think he did. Because uh, a lot of it was just dancing and them being drunk morons. Like, I get it. They're well, drunk morons. Well, you could have gotten morons. that less of it. But I'll tell you what I think. Some of, of the, it. I'm, I'm, that's what I'm saying. Again, like, you could take the uh, footage that's there, you could take 45 minutes out of this movie, and it'd be fine. Just to, um, to sort of give you my thing about it. Um, because, again, growing up with the shadow of this movie over it, over you. Uh... I think that it was, I really appreciate that opening hour, actually. I don't know that it needed, again, to be as long as it was. But I appreciate that opening hour for being, really giving you so much about the characters without having to do an extensive 
over several months backstory. You got yeah, everything no, you that's true. Know. It's all at once, and, it, and I do like that. But once again, it, we it could, could have been it. shorter than it was. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that I think the director had a lot of repercussions because of this and the next film that he did, which swelled to a ridiculous amount of money. And as we know, for some reason, not producers, but uh, maybe it is producers who want us to feel bad when a movie goes over budget. Why does it matter? I, I, there was a when uh, Terminator Two cost as much money as it did, or when a, rather, let's go back. Apocalypse Now cost thirty million dollars. Well, he was just being a fucking dick. You didn't Francis need to Ford bring Coppola, in right. filet and fucking whatever to the jungle, you dick. Francis Ford Coppola said, "Someday all movies will cost thirty million dollars." He's not wrong, but it's not no. because they're bringing in filet mignon. No, I, and I understand that, but the point I'm trying to make to is the... that producers or somebody always tries to awe you for when a movie goes over budget. And so when Heaven's Gate went over budget, when it wound up turning in like a print that was 219 minutes, they just saw this Michael Cimino as an overindulgent director who made a lot of mistakes or accidents, who was very sloppy with his production work, who did these weird transitions where nobody knew what was going on, the movies were confusing, or, right. and it kind of hurt his career. And so we never got to see if he was capable of this kind of thing again. And he did other movies, other good movies, other commercially successful movies. I, I have a feeling that this person is particularly difficult to work with. That was the impression. And I actually got. also have a feeling that he may have rubbed De Niro the wrong way because I feel like De Niro would have brought him with him. Yeah. Into his significant success if he had not been difficult to work with. But my sense is that this dude is for whatever reason, difficult. Well, yeah, and but uh, indulgent. The, like, the first cut of Heaven's Gate was 325 minutes. And it's just, you you didn't... Did you make a Netflix miniseries? Right. Is that it's, what you made? The, I this think was that's a guy who made. might have been actually ahead of his time, but when he was rising in prominence with the, the young directors, the Coppolas, the George Lucas, and the yeah. rest, he just sort of fell behind with that. Um, but... It was almost as if people wanted him to fail after this, too, for some reason. I like the movie. I think it's very uneven. It's weirdly told. It's told in a very strange way. I really like the disconnect right. of, the, of the cuts of the scenes because I really feel like it puts you in the well, mindset it, of the characters. It makes it very disorienting. And at times, I wasn't really sure about the motivations of the characters and what they were doing because I didn't have as clear a read of it as you did, apparently. Mm. Now, that having been said, I actually do think it's a very good movie. And like you said, I don't know if I ever need to see it again. No, I it was I, I think the, hard to right. watch. It's like there are films I appreciate that I never need to come back to. There's some of the, you know, Argento's movies or something where I'm like, wow, kids. that was really good. And kids. I bought kids, man. Oh, Jesus. I, so I've seen that movie four times. Mm-hmm. Y'all don't. I've don't seen it do once, that. and I'm like, I'm good with That's it. That's how many times you should watch it. Right. Everyone yeah. should watch it. One time and never And it's again. important, actually, frankly, I think it was important to see it one time. I wish that... I think so. I would, that's kids, why I bought it, uh-huh. because I wanted people to see it. Right. I was, like, um, proselytizing it. Well, the parents of some of the kids I worked with when I worked in an elementary school, the sixth graders, I wanted those parents to look, look, you know what? This is what kids are capable of getting up to, even at this age. Yeah. And... Uh, uh, but yeah, again, I never need to see that movie. Again. No, you you don't. And so with this one, one it's I admire 
how beautiful, how physically beautiful the film is. It is very beautiful. I admire some of the scenes in it are really intense and and gripping. I'm not sure it's an overall success, but I have to say, I was very, very impressed by the movie. I think it's an overall success. Yeah, I think you're I, wrong. Well, we, we can have differences of opinion. Well, it won Best Hot Picture and Best Director and right. so and Best Screenplay, which I don't agree with, actually. Um, cinematography, though. I yeah, think Best Screenplay, well. I don't think I would give it that way. Because it felt like a lot of this was sort of made up as they went along. And that's the way it's supposed to be. It was that wedding hour really felt like you were actually at a wedding, that these are Which people getting drunk. Which would have been drunk. fine for 20 minutes. It right. did not need to be a whole ass 51 minutes long. But yeah, in because in the middle of the, the service, I yeah. was like, are we going to watch It's Yes, it felt like you were thing? watching it in real time. This is what the actual Russian Orthodox, Russian Orthodox, try saying that three times fast. You probably could. Uh, service felt like. It's like, oh, here we are. There's the priest. That's why I asked if the priest was genuine. because yes. It, it all felt very much like phrase. I'm actually sitting in a church watching a wedding. Yeah. But um, but yeah, I, I it's it's a kind of a startling movie, and uh, it's a pity the director never got really that much momentum behind what else he was able to do. Um, yeah, yeah. I was startled by how how good it it remained, or how uh, how much of its uh, strength remained intact. Oh yeah. It didn't feel dated. That was another thing that I noticed. It did not feel dated to me. Yeah. All right. Do you have any recommendations this week? I don't have a recommendation yet. I'm working up to one. For this week, the Anything? only thing is something I already recommended, I think, which is I had given a cautious recommendation to this season of Daredevil, uh, the third season, and I have to give a really enthusiastic... And final. Oh enthusiastic recommendation of this season of Daredevil. We're about it, to watch the end of it. it we have one episode left. <laughs> really impressive. And having somebody who's familiar with the characters through comic books, they're visualized and realized exactly the way that they were there, only given a lot more adult depth. And I think the watching of this is more poignant for the fact that I know it's not coming back. Yeah. And I, it's sort of I feel bad seeing that the stories of these characters are not going to get resolved. And uh, or resolve to my satisfaction, I don't get to visit with them again. And I was really yes, impressed. Yes, you do. With, They're going to be on Netflix forever. But I was really <laughs> impressed with, uh, especially, um, and his name just escaped me, Kingpin. Oh, uh, Vincent D'Onofrio. Vincent D'Onofrio, who is the physical embodiment. Uh, he looks like the A drawings. Yeah. He really does. He's even wearing the, the iconic suit really well. And he's playing a villain and we discussed this a minute ago, that in the Marvel Universe, the villains are never particularly strong. Yeah, the movies are have a villain issue. But the TV shows between Jessica Jones, her Kilgrave character, and Kingpin, you have just villains who are so insurmountable in both cases. Yeah. Kilgrave's character could tell anybody to do what they wanted. They had to do it. They were compelled to do it. Right. And Kingpin's power is to be that nightmare crime boss who no he one can just get has to. too much money and is too smart. And he, that combination of thing. things is bad. He's absolutely ruthless. And so the way he's able to stay one step ahead of the heroes so that you actually begin to feel anxious whether the character that you, your lead character is going to survive to the end of the season. 
And uh, and so it, it really works as a great suspense show. There's a lot of action to it, but I feel like the drama this season has been really, really good. And the writing has been really good. Well, so, if you... What's your recommendation? I don't have one. Oh, that's a pity. I'm bad. <laughs> I haven't been watching much because I was traveling this weekend. Now, tell us what you did because we didn't do the segment at the beginning of the show where we asked what you were up to and you had an interesting weekend. I went to Reno. We drove through the snows. It was safe. We didn't have to use chains. I was concerned about that. Me too. And I went to Reno because I had two free nights and two free tickets to see Brian Regan. Oh, I'll recommend him and Taylor Tomlinson. Brian Regan is, uh, he's been referred to as the comedian's comedian. He's a clean comic. That doesn't mean he's bad. It just means that he doesn't swear. He apparently has a show coming out on Netflix uh, this what this month at some point, but I'm not. I don't know the deets. So I recommend anything that's him, including his last special. I think was called the Epitome of Hyperbole. That's the epitome of hyperbole. It's spelled that way, but he, yeah, you get it. And then his opening act was actually Taylor Tomlinson, who also has a special on Netflix. Check her out. She's very funny. Also very young. Makes me feel very bad about myself. <laughs> it's like, you are 20 what? How many years old? 25? Shut up. Why are you on such a big stage? <laughs> yeah, you're dwarfed <laughs> um, by your stage. But uh, it was a very good show. I won money in slot machines, which um, I felt pretty good about. I had a lovely dinner. So I recommend Reno, y'all. Go to Reno. Yeah, or just I, go on vacation. I'm going out of town this weekend, too, and it's a lot to be away from. I uh, I went on vacation with you once, uh, with our housemates also. And I had a novelette to finish, which is still unfinished. But my experience with Reno was locking myself in a room with bad television, mostly. That was during the 4th of July, right. and um, we went to see the Counting Crows. Right. You went to see the Counting Crows, and I... The, uh, we, uh, we're going to the Grand Sierra Resort, this place in Reno, which has a really good theater. So now I'm signed up to their Players Club or whatever, so I get, you know, free tickets to stuff at that theater. That theater is excellent. And so I'm like, well, if it's a thing I kind of want to see... And you're going to let me stay there for free for two days and give me free tickets? I will go. So right. this is going to be like a thing, I think. Well, I, I went with you. I needed to finish my work. So I just locked myself in the room for two days and brought only one change of clothes so that I would force myself not to get out and start wandering around. And so I need to probably return to Reno and have more fun this time and not have the experience of trying to force myself to work. So maybe that's next time. Yeah. Yes. I think so. Um, and I'm going to well, keep... We'll be going to Seattle in, in January, so maybe that'll count, as, on in January. count as my vacation. Pacan. Yeah. That's I hear there's right. an underground city that I want to see. Oh. Oh, did you get my message? No. Hey, everyone. 
Sometimes you book oh, a flight and it's yeah. early and you think, oh, this flight is early, but it's the earliest I want to get to the airport is 6.30. So an 8.40 flight, that'll do. And then you get an email that says, hey, Alaska Airlines has made a change to your itinerary. And you click on it and it says, hey, that 8.40 flight, you're not on it anymore. Now you're on a 6 a.m. flight. Fuck you. So fuck us, I guess. I actually, I actually did say <laughs> fuck you. I saw it. It really feels like American Airlines is like... Just telling me to eat all the dicks, which is very rude. Um, so I'm a little pissed at American Airlines. We're going to have to be at the fucking airport at 4.30. 4.30. That sucks, dude. That sucks. I'm mad about it. The upside is there are four of us on that flight. We bought our tickets separately, like on separate days. They bought their two and we bought our two. We all got, I don't know if that flight got canceled mm -hmm. or what happened, but we all got bumped to the 6 a.m. Um, so at least we're all in it together. And I don't, I don't like flying. I've only done it a couple of, well, here's the problem with flying. I took my ailing parent to Georgia and returned on the same day. Yeah, that's too much. So because we from need, California, from that's California, because we needed to move. Uh, two days later. Yeah. So I didn't have any time to spare. So I did it all one day. And I, that was the first time I'd actually taken a plane since I was, I think, 15 years old. Doof a doof. So. This one is going to be way better. Right. I, it's I hope like to God an hour be and 15 minutes or something. There were moments on that plane trip where I'm like, I'm going to open this window and jump. No, I you're not. It's been on here way too long. Yeah. So, yay. PodCon, though, in January, we're very excited. I might get pins. Yeah. I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't know. Anyways, I think that brings us to the end with my not recommendation. Go on vacation, everyone. I guess it's my recommendation. I think the rest of my year's recommendations are going to probably be baked goods, so buckle up. I recommend cookies. I'm going to be making cookies and candies after this weekend when I'm out of town. So, okay. Anything else? Nope. I think that covers it. All right. We've had we'll a really be... good week. Back next week to talk about a m totally different movie, Dirty One Scoundrels. And uh, in the meantime, if you have any questions, concerns, uh, comments, if you have thoughts about The Deer Hunter, Russian Roulette, uh, Vietnam. Uh, you hear Russian Roulette tips. Christopher Walken's beautiful hair. I didn't mention it. I do love his hair in this movie. Uh, you can find us. You can let us know your opinions uh, at latecomerspod at gmail.com or on Twitter at latecomerspod. Uh, we've got a Facebook page and group. You can find us under Latecomers Podcast. Um, join us. Join us. One of us. One of us. Uh, and we will see you next week. We thank you very much for listening. And remember... Better late than, than never. never. Pew, pew, pew. I forgot how to end it. Uh, pew, pew, pew. We did it. <laughs>